Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we're going to hear from former 10 Downing Street Director of Communications, Alistair Campbell, about the stigma around mental health in the workplace and tips for employers and those suffering with mental ill health. Also, we have a candid interview about suffering from burnout. First up, I'm delighted to be able to bring you some clips from a recent interview with Alistair Campbell, which was streamed as part of the Workplace Wellbeing Show virtual conference. Alistair is one of the UK's foremost mental health campaigners and an ambassador for several mental health charities, including mine, the official charity partner of the Workplace Wellbeing Show. In this open talk, Alistair spoke to Safety and Health Expo and Workplace Wellbeing Show event manager Charlotte Gagan about his struggles with depression. He also addressed wellbeing in the workplace giving his thoughts on how leaders and colleagues can best support others going through similar experiences to his. Let's join the conversation with Alistair giving his thoughts on the best way for leaders and managers to support people who have been going through or are currently going through a particularly difficult period of mental illness. Don't define people by illness. Don't define them by the worst that happens. Define them by the best that you think they are. Now, sometimes we all know, well, I've had situations where you've got people who you know just, they can't function, they can't do the job they're meant to do because they're not well. Well, you have to deal with that, but deal with it sympathetically. I had a brother, as I say, who had schizophrenia, and, you know, when people say schizophrenia, if you don't know anything about schizophrenia, which I didn't until he was diagnosed and we had to learn about it, people find it really strange, but he held down the same job for 27 years. Now, he wasn't running a country, and he wasn't running a campaign and he wasn't editing a newspaper. It was quite a lowly job, but he held that job for 27 years. He worked at Glasgow University. The reason he was able to hold down that job for 27 years is because they never defined him as a schizophrenic. They defined him as an employee who had schizophrenia. And sometimes that meant, particularly when he stopped taking his medication, which a lot of people with schizophrenia do when they think they're well, he could go off the rails. They saw it as their job to help and support him while he got back on. So I just say, don't define people by illness. If I go into my pocket now, I don't go anywhere without an inhaler. But I bet you didn't know I was asthmatic. No, you never say, oh, here's, here's uh, Charlotte, she's an asthmatic. Have you met Charlotte? She's a diabetic. You don't define people by illness, except when it's mental illness. What can people do what can colleagues do to support those who they work closely with who let's say for the purpose of this question someone who they work with who they know does get depression from time to time yeah can you do as a colleague or even as, as a friend or a close contact what can you do to be there for somebody who gets depression let's say they're not experiencing it right now it's interesting that you, you talk about a colleague or a friend. Often colleagues are people's closest friends. And I think that one of the reasons I campaign on this, and when I was researching and writing my book about depression, the way I see this thing now is that there are three big places where I think we can help each other. Government obviously has to be there to provide services and money, etc. And without getting too political, I'm not that happy with the way that's going at the moment. Families and individuals can do an awful lot for themselves and for each other. And again, where it's good, it's great, but it's a very, very mixed picture. But I think employers, if anything, have got as important a role as either of these two. I think employers are fundamental to the change in attitudes. 
And that's definitely happening. And I think it's happening in part because coming out of the financial crisis, most of the big banks, most of the big financial institutions, most of the big companies that were hit hard, they had suicides. I did a thing not long ago for the Time to Change campaign. I know you do work with mine and so do I. And they asked me to go and open the stock exchange. It's not as glamorous and big as the New York stock exchange, but there is a thing where you open the stock exchange every day. And the reason was they'd had a suicide. And they had a desk there. I don't know if it's still the same. But they hadn't touched the desk of this guy who'd taken the own life because they wanted it there as a reminder to people, if you get too stressed, if you can't cope, if you bottle it all up inside yourself, if you take it all upon yourself, then the worst may happen. And I thought that was an incredibly powerful thing to do. What stigmas do you think are still common when it comes to mental health? I mentioned my brother who has schizophrenia. Drives me crazy when I hear Football commentators say, you know, he's very schizophrenic in his attitude. Some days he's really positive, other days he's not. It's like Jekyll and Hyde. When Jekyll and Hyde was written, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, he wrote a book. But Jekyll and Hyde has become like part of our language. He's a Jekyll and Hyde character. People still use it in relation to schizophrenia. If you say to somebody who says, you know, say you talk about depression, you still hear people say, well, what's he got to be depressed about? That's stigma. That's basically saying depression isn't an illness, it's a choice. What's he got to be depressed about? I go back to the point about my inhaler. You never say, what have you got to be asthmatic about? What have you got to be cancerous about? You've got a nice house, you shouldn't have cancer. You've got lovely kids, what have you got cancer for? Well, with mental health, we still get that. You know, that's part of the stigma. And then I think the other thing is the assumption that people can't be mentally ill and still be useful at doing stuff. I think some of the best work I've ever done has been when I've been depressed. Some of the best work I've ever done has been when I've been coming out of a depression. There's a friend of mine called Nasa Gamey, he's a psychiatrist in Boston in America. I don't know if he's done it yet, but he was working on a book about Martin Luther King. I don't know if you know this, but Martin Luther King was bipolar. Okay? Manic depressive. So and I prefer manic depressive actually as a, as a descriptor, because I think it feels like sort of gets the better. But anyway, it's bipolar. And Nasser Gamey's theory for his book was that Martin Luther King became, we know Martin Luther King to be, one of the most amazing, achieving, campaigning, charismatic figures in history, not despite of his mental disorder, but because of it. His argument being that his energy and his charisma and his power with language, his resilience and his ability to keep going, it came, if you like, from the manic bit. And his understanding of the pain of human suffering at the hands of prejudice and so forth, that came from his depression. Any last words of advice for the workplace wellbeing readers who will be listening? Do you know about my jam jar? This is my little personal device that I used. And when I was researching for a documentary and then researching for my book, I travelled all over the world talking to all sorts of different people about how they deal with depression. I found this woman in Canada called Janine Austin, and she said, the secret to my life is a jam jar. She says, anybody who's ever made jam, I confess I've never made jam, there's always a sediment. She says, that's your genes. Never gonna go. The rest of the jam jar, that's your life. And your life mixes up good memories, bad memories, good things, bad things. And most of the time, most people can cope. That's the other thing to remember. A lot of people aren't coping, but a lot of people are. When you can't cope, when your life becomes uncontrollable and your jam jar explodes and you're ill, 
And she says, for you, me, that means depression. Once it meant psychosis. Other times it's meant addictive tendencies that you've got to be very careful about. And she says, the trouble is that we all think we can unmake all this, but you can't unmake any of it. There's nothing wrong with analysis. Go along and down here, you've got the Freudians talking about what you thought about your mum and dad and your genes. Then you've got the therapist who is saying, what did you do last Tuesday and how did that make you feel? What you should do, she said, is try to grow the jam jar so you've got more of life to put into it. And I didn't even know what she was talking about at the time, but I had a kind of pinging Eureka moment a few days later and I got up and I drew my jam jar. And honestly, I apologize in advance for the fact that this looks a bit rude, okay? Okay. I drew it from the bottom, right? Thank so that is my jam jar. Okay. Jeans, okay. sediment, life. <laughs> And then up here are all the things that I've added. FFF, Fiona family friends, my partner, my kids, my friends. MA is meaningful activity. And I've got a dotted line above the line. Actually, it can be either meaningful activity to make a living, meaningful activity to make a difference. Then my fundamentals, sleep, diet, exercise. Then the things that are important to me, Burnley Football Club, music, creativity, curiosity, Here's one of my little rules, never go to bed without knowing something you didn't know when you woke up. And the thing is, if you just said to me before I met Janine in Canada and she gave me my jam jar and told me to think about my mental health in a different way, if you just said to me, how do you look after depression? I would have said, I take medication every day and I see a psychiatrist. And I still do that. I still take medication every day and I still see a psychiatrist when I'm really bad. But now if you ask me, how do you look after it? Say, I've got my jam jar. So there you go. That's my last little tip. It was a pleasure to have Alistair speak at the conference and I really hope there was some valuable information in those clips for you to be able to take away. Next up, it's another session from the Virtual Workplace Wellbeing Show conference. This time, I'm going to hand over to Heather Beach from The Healthy Work Company for an interview with Vicky Simons based on recent personal experience. Two months into a new job, the pandemic hit and Vicky's life took a turn for the worst. Locked down alone, far away from her support network of friends and family. Around the same time, she lost a close friend to COVID and two ex-colleagues who died by suicide. Vicky continued to work at full capacity, but it became too much. Despite usually dealing well with stress, Vicky started to experience psychosis symptoms, hallucinations, panic attacks, suicidal dreams, amongst other mental and physical reactions. She sought medical advice and has been signed off work to give her time to recover. In the interview, you're going to hear about how she shares her experiences and outlines some outstanding support she's had from colleagues, highlighting what workplaces can do to support anyone in a similar position. Let me hand over to Heather now. So I'm here with Vicky. Vicky and I first met several years ago. Then we reconnected recently and Vicky was telling me about some of the issues that she'd been having recently. And I was just blown away by some of the challenges that she'd been having and some of it was quite new to me. So I thought it would be really nice if she could share that. And she was very willing. She said that she would be very happy to share if somebody else was going to gain something from listening to her. So Vicky, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are? Firstly, I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me onto this. If I could help just one person by doing so, then I've done my job. So I'm European Director of Health and Safety for a global supply chain company called CHEP. I joined the business back in January 2020. Due to us being key workers, we've continued to operate throughout the entire pandemic at pretty much full capacity with minimal disruption. 
I have 15 years experience in health, safety and well-being. And prior to my appointment at CHEP, my background and experience lies predominantly with construction and real estate. And I absolutely love what I do. It gives me great satisfaction and pleasure to be able to have such an impact on others' lives, looking after others' health, safety and well-being and knowing that that has a direct influence on their personal lives, their family life and making out-of-work decisions. So Vicky, I know you said that it's massively affected your confidence. So this can't have been easy for you, has it been? That's been the hardest part for me in, in this entire thing. It, it's completely taken away my confidence. I mean, I'm a very confident person. I know what I'm doing. And towards the end of me leaving Chet to take my recovery break, I couldn't even speak in everyday meetings that we were having. I couldn't present. I was having severe panic attacks. I had such low self-esteem and zero confidence And that was when I knew I had to just down tools because I couldn't operate. I just couldn't work. I couldn't function. My confidence is slowly coming back. But at the peak of the breakdown, it was just gone. You know, even in social situations, I found myself just hating every minute of it because that's been the hardest thing. It's completely wiped my confidence away from me. When we kind of reconnected, you were talking about the fact that you've been struggling recently and you talked about burnout. And it's a subject that's of great interest to me because I've also had a couple of mini burnouts. But some of the stuff that you talked about in terms of what you've been experiencing was way outside of my experience. Like it was really, really, really difficult stuff. So just talk to me a little bit about how you first realised you potentially were suffering from burnout. My symptoms had been going on for about four months. I completely lost my creativity, my passion, And I knew that I wasn't enjoying my work 100% at the time. I was down, I was feeling negative, and I completely lost my ability to even make the smallest of decisions. So my symptoms were hallucinations. I had high pitch ringing in my ears. I was having suicidal dreams, suicidal thoughts. I was having nightmares. I was having in-sleep panic attacks. And then I just completely couldn't figure out what reality was because I'm quite active. So I was doing between 10 to 20,000 steps a day. So I'm walking around Amsterdam and I was getting completely lost when I was out walking. And Amsterdam, you know, it's quite a small city. And I know it like the back of my hand. I've lived here for two and a half years now, but I was getting completely lost. And then I just couldn't figure out where I was, couldn't figure out who I was. And then day to day, the, the thought pattern was changing. Some mornings I'd wake up, didn't know why I was living in Amsterdam, couldn't remember why I'd moved here. Then I had some physical symptoms. So I have a personal trainer. We was training together and I'd be doing something and I'd be almost in tears. I didn't feel like my mind was connecting to my muscles and I was giving up. My PT was saying to me, but your technique is perfect. I don't understand what's going on. And my mind was so far disconnected from my body. I just couldn't train. I just couldn't feel that connection. It was indescribable. I think where I enjoy my work so much, I didn't realise I'd fallen into like a black hole of overworking myself, enormous amounts of pressure on myself and then completely losing myself. Felt like I wasn't doing my best. I was sleeping longer than what I usually do. I, I can run on minimal sleep and I'm quite a hyperactive person and I was just losing that feeling and sleeping for longer. Then eventually I called my doctor and just said, look, I'm absolutely petrified something is happening to me. 
And I honestly thought that I'd had like an early onset dementia or something. I thought I'd gone insane. It, I was petrified. And I listed my symptoms and she said, you know, wow, you've had such a severe nervous breakdown. Your body is screaming for you to stop. So the whole mind with the disconnection to the muscles, you know, you really have overdone it. And where the symptoms have started so long before I made that phone call and I'd pushed through every single one of them, I'd made it worse. And I'd continue to keep working and training and doing what I thought was the best thing to do. And actually, I was just making everything worse. Some of what you've described, you know, is such a classic, that's what you expect burnout to look like, like this disconnection with your work, for example, feeling like, you know, stuff you really, really enjoyed normally, all of a sudden, you don't care, you feel cynical and all of those things. But, you know, to actually suffer from effectively hallucinations, from panic attacks in your sleep, from, you know, that's really severe, isn't it? Yeah. And I was in complete denial. Where I've worked in this field for so many years and, and being in construction, working in the mental health and wellbeing arena, where it's so big in that industry, I know a lot about the subject. I've studied it for years in the psychology side of it. So I know a lot about it. I've helped men come to terms with breakdowns and mental illnesses and I've sat with men when they've been crying and talking about it and I know how to spot the signs yet when it happened to me I didn't know that they were some of the symptoms I'm in denial still now and I think you know one of my colleagues and he's, he's a key stakeholder he said to me when I first told him he said but Vicky even the doctor can catch the flu and that really hit me hard so I thought that's so true because it can happen to anyone and, and being a health and safety and well-being professional it can happen to us as well. And I think I was trying to operate in a, a brand new industry, in a new company, a new role, trying to bring with me my wealth of experience and knowledge from construction and connect it to this new industry when I wasn't able to go and see my new environment. So I joined in January and I spent January and February doing a, a tour of, of Europe, meeting some key stakeholders and colleagues then in March, we very quickly went into lockdown. We put an international travel ban on. So I was trying to now operate to the best of my ability from behind a laptop. And that was when I really struggled. And I think that was a key contributory factor to, to, to this. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. We know that there are certain characteristics. It's, it, it's not just about the work environment, is it? So we know that it's an occupational condition and therefore you should look at the workplace and say, OK, workplace, how have you encouraged this person to burn out? But I'm a great believer that we're not robots. We go to work with our own drivers, you know, whether it be perfectionism or whether it be, you know, people pleasing or whatever it might be. We're going with our own drivers in there. And you've only just joined this organisation, haven't you? Yet we've had this environmental thing happen, which is lockdown, which will have really prevented you from being able to do the job you wanted to do. But what else can you say was contributing? What led to it from your perspective? I mean, did you feel it before you joined this business, for example? Nope. Lockdown was definitely the biggest factor. So as I said, you know, I was trying to do my absolute best from behind a laptop. I was missing that real connection of meeting people, getting to know what makes the business tick, what makes us work well as a business, meet the teams, meet the rest of the stakeholders. And as I said, I'm trying to bring with me my knowledge and experience from construction to a brand new environment without really knowing the new environment. So it was difficult for me. And I felt like I I was completely failing. And this was me putting pressure on myself. This was me coming in with all these big ideas, big plans, seeing the connection between the construction industry and my new industry at Chet. 
and then not being able to do anything about it. But then when COVID hit as well, it was like all of my action plan and my things I wanted to do were being pushed further and further down the agenda because COVID completely took over the business and we had to make key decisions every day. We were learning as we were going along and I found it difficult. I felt like I was just making decisions on COVID, which looking back now was the right thing to do, but I was still trying to push action plan and trying to change the rest of you know the things I wanted to change being locked down in another country obviously as you know I'm living in Amsterdam my family and friends are in London so being away from them was difficult I lost one of my closest friends back when COVID first hit back in uh, April I lost him so that was difficult I had two ex-colleagues last year unfortunately commit suicide and there was various other things that happened and I think I seem to deal with stress quite well, but then it all comes to a grinding halt and my sleep suffers from it. I have nightmares. So it just comes out in other ways. So I think they were all contributory factors. The workload itself, it switched from being a health and safety professional to being actually we need to start looking at this COVID thing. You know, what is it? What do we need to do? And and every day it was evolving. It was the lockdown and COVID. I think had that have not happened, I am a great believer of this wouldn't have happened to me. Yeah. I hope it would have anyway. No, absolutely. And what have you been doing to recover? What kinds of things you put in place? I mean, presumably you have to just do nothing for a bit. I know that was my experience. I just couldn't function for a bit. So coming to terms with it was the hardest. Like I said, I'm still partly in denial. So now I'm doing anything that soothes my mind and soul. So I'm still training a lot. I'm doing between 15 and over 20,000 steps a day. I'm outdoors as much as possible, walking or running, reformer Pilates. Meditation has been great for me. I've always sort of dipped in and out of it. It really helps me sleep, but now I do it religiously daily. And just cutting out anything that I don't think is good for me. So if I don't want to do something, I don't do it. And if I do want to do something, I'll do it. I need to make sure that I am recovering and also keeping myself happy I think that's important because we get lost in this you know not just when we have a nervous breakdown or or burnout but just in life I think we sort of forget what keeps us going and what keeps us us happy so I'm just trying to tap into that a bit more now and just in touch with like my fitness and try and be outside in nature as much as possible just looking at it from your workplace's perspective I mean bit of a nightmare for them they take somebody on and then within two months it's like oh you've fallen over but as I understand it they've been good haven't they so that's exactly how I felt and I think that's also what made it so hard for me to come to terms with because I found it embarrassing and they have been absolutely incredible and I could not have asked for better support and I genuinely mean that So coming to terms with this has been extremely difficult for me and I'm, you know, still partially in denial. But when something like this happens to you, when it starts off, it's just a thought in your own head. It's just something that's happened to you. You're in complete denial. But when you start to tell someone or a group of people and say it aloud, then that situation becomes very real. It becomes reality. And people tend to start asking questions because they genuinely care about your well-being and your process of recovery. And if I hadn't have told anyone, I'd still be suffering in silence. But once I did, that changed everything. I simply could not come to terms with it. It was like I was still on the path to acceptance. Yet my colleagues and key stakeholders were 10 steps ahead of me, helping me to come to terms with it and move towards that journey of acceptance and encouraging me to start the journey of recovery. 
And the sheer sincerity of advice given and support offered was top tier. So you only wanted to take two weeks. And did they understand that actually the doctor had asked you to take three months? Did you tell them or what happened there? They were really against it. They wanted me to take off the proper length of time to recover. And I came back to work in the January and continued to work. There were some things I wanted to get over the line and I was I really didn't want to leave. And like we said, it was embarrassing for me to join a new business. And this happened pretty much, you know, a year in, really against the idea of having time off anyway. But they were just incredible. And they were telling me to take the time off. And there was never, ever, ever a question of, okay, so three months off takes us to this date. They were saying to me, if it takes four months, five months, six months, if it takes a year, take it. This is just a small blip in your career at Czech. You know, you get support from your friends and family, but when you're in a business like this, that support means so much more because you know you will be going back to work to the team welcoming you back, being the refreshed version of yourself. And I couldn't have asked for anything better. And I've had nobody calling me saying, when are you coming back? I've had a couple of colleagues reach out to me just to say, don't want you to reply to this, just making sure you're okay. There's been no talk about going back to work. And and when I left, I had so much support. The guys on the shop floor up to our president of, of Europe, all saying to me, look, we can't wait to have you back. My line manager, the global senior vice president of health and safety has been amazing. He also said the same. So from key stakeholders down to shop floor staff, was, the support felt was just heartwarming. And, and honestly, it's, it's been incredible. Oh, I can understand that. That must make such a difference because yeah. just hearing it from your family and friends is one thing. But your workplace going all out to support you like that is incredible. Really, really incredible. And, you know, a real, real kind of feather in the cap for your employer is fantastic. Yeah. And also to be with the business for such a short amount of time and respect and understanding and support, really overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. When you do come out of it, have you given any thought to sorts of things you might consider doing differently or how you're going to live differently on the other side? Because I know for me, when this happened to me and it was nowhere near as bad as yours, it had to happen twice for me to really kind of get that actually I needed to do things differently. One of my main problems is that I was overthinking every situation and putting the pressure on myself. So I was ending the work day and I was going over everything, the emails, the meetings, the things I'd said, the things I hadn't said. And I was putting so much pressure on myself. I wasn't sleeping and I was just overthinking everything. Going forward, what I'll do is learn to finish my day knowing that I did the best I could do at that time with the tools I had. The problem is I tried to answer every question, every problem, every situation with the right answer all the time. Then everything to me became like a test. And we all know what happens in that type of situation. You get anxiety and you feel the pressure. I need to learn that I'm not always going to have the right answer. And that's okay. We're all doing the best we can do. It's so interesting because a lot of what you talked about there, I can totally recognise in myself. Perfectionism is something that we talk about a lot on our courses as being something Mm. you don't even realise that you have because you have a view of what perfectionism looks like. And it might be procrastinating. It might be everything neat and tidy. But actually, it's not that at all. It's about having really high standards for yourself. And other people's expectations of you, you think, are really high as well. And so many of us struggle with that. And actually, our workplace is set up to kind of encourage it because people do well when they do things right, don't they? The big discovery was self-compassion. 
Yes. When I first heard about it, I was like, self-compassion? Who needs self-compassion for goodness sake? <laughs> as always, the thing you, you most need, the thing is you most resist, isn't it? And when you are more compassionate towards yourself and understanding everyone's imperfect, everyone's just, as you said, doing the best with the tools they have available, when you're more compassionate towards yourself, you can be more compassionate towards other people as well, can't you? Yeah. That's so interesting about it. And that was where I completely fell down because in my head, I was constantly saying, that was the wrong answer. Why did you say that for? You haven't done that today. You haven't done this today. And like I say about joining a new company in a new industry, I had this whole list of things I wanted to do and where I wasn't getting through it. And I thought I was doing the wrong thing all the time just because I was overthinking and putting that pressure on. I just spiraled out of control and then, you know, self-hate starts coming in. I'm not going to have the right answer all the time. I need to, you know, think this through. I think you've been incredibly brave, not only for dealing with this situation and acknowledging it and doing the work that you're going to needing to do with yourself to make sure it doesn't happen to you again, but also for sharing it with today. So really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'm sure you will have helped people by doing this. You've certainly helped me. We've talked about mental ill health and burnout a fair bit on this podcast over the last 12 months or so, but it's such a vital topic and those episodes in particular have been really well received by you. So I thought these two interviews would provide some really useful and valuable insight from two people who are happy and willing to share some really personal stories. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Alistair Campbell, Vicky Simons and Heather Beach for speaking at the Workplace Wellbeing Show virtual conference and for allowing us to use their audio on this episode. Thank you to you as well for tuning in and listening. If you've not listened to the previous 11 episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check them out. Last time we heard from four SHP award winners who shared some interesting and innovative safety ideas from the construction and manufacturing sectors and how the personal perceived negative struggles of mental health can be turned into a positive. If you like what you hear, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we're also available on Amazon Alexa. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'll be really grateful if you could rate us, comment on your chosen platform, and that will get the sh- help us get the shows out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.